everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz. It's This Week in XR. It's March 25th, 2022. And uh, as always, thank you to our sponsor, Verbella. Good morning, Ted. How are you doing? I'm good, Charlie. I'm on the road again. I'm starting to, you know, get out of the shell and do you, a couple of things here and there. You have that generic hotel look about you. I do have a generic <laughs> hotel look about me. There's going to be more of that. We've got NAB coming up soon. Some of my friends are at GDC uh, this week. So there's lots going on. I mean, the shows are back. We yep. were talking about South by last week. NAB was this week and next week is GDC. Are you going to GDC? No, I'm not going to GDC. NAB will be my first uh, foray back into the, the large amounts of crowds uh, as so, long as everything so holds up. So we've got Peter Rojas coming on this morning, uh, venture capitalist now uh, back with Meta, uh, running a, a new product group for them. So we'll hear more about that. Uh, as you know, he was a partner at Betaworks, which invested in Rec Room and Steam and, and uh, a number of other XR companies early, like in 2015, 2016. So uh, that'll be a great conversation. But we have some big news this week. And because we are, I want to leave a lot of time for Peter, uh, let's try and motor through them as fast as we can. But Sounds big good. Fire Autodesk away. buys the wild. Right. I mean, I don't know what the wild, for those of you who don't know, they do building information management uh, in VR. They bought a company called Iris that's been integrated with Autodesk for a long time. And, um, you know, they're for just building designers, interior designers, architect to build things in 3D. Uh, I think I, I'm guessing this is, it's a private company and I doubt Autodesk is gonna, is disclosing, but this was 700, several hundred million dollars. Uh, and it basically locks Autodesk's position in VR and architecture in place pretty much forever. Right. And this is our continued thesis, Charlie, about professional applications, professional use cases, heavy and light industry, adopting and leaning into virtual reality, mixed reality at an extraordinary rate. Um, and it's just another step in the equation. Right? Yeah, this was very strategic, right? Because I mean, it's, it's they're laser focused on one, one category. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you know that VR is getting bigger and bigger in that category. Mm -hmm. So, okay, another enterprise XR deal. Our friend, Justin Barad at OsoVR pulls in another $66 million. So that brings their total raise well over $100 million. For those of you who don't know, um, OsoVR, also a company that's been around at this point, I think six or seven years, uh, they, they do orthopedic surgery simulation. So they started out doing knee surgery, now they're doing hip surgery. And Justin, who is a orthopedic surgeon, uh, was so shocked at the kinds of training that they do for rather invasive surgeries, which is basically, as a resident, you stand next to a doctor, you watch him do it five or 10 times, and then he stands aside and hands you the tools. And, uh, you know, Justin, of course, you know, was trained this way. And he's like, gosh, darn, that was scary, especially for the patients. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he invented this system. And, you know, medicine, uh, you know, is a very high tech industry, um, but very resistant to change, because who pays, right? Who pays to train people on the VR equipment? And right, you know, you've been, doing, you've been doing orthopedic surgery for 30 years. I, you don't need to be trained using VR. So there are all these institutional reasons why it shouldn't happen, but they have been so persistent. Now it's in medical schools, which is really the place where it makes the most sense, right? Mm -hmm. Then the who pays for it question is obvious, mm -hmm. right? Which is the people who need to be trained. So um, 
congratulations to Justin. I'm just great, great story, great guy. Uh, and, and there is a VR company really doing good and doing good in the enterprise space. So uh, better doctors benefits everybody. Um, probably should have been the lead story. So forgive me, friends at Qualcomm. Uh, they're spending $100 million on a new XR fund. And uh, what's funny is Qualcomm Ventures is still out there as a, a separate beast. So this yeah. is this is Qualcomm. Another piece spending, of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, this is Qualcomm spending even more money to promote uh, a category where they really are the head dog. Right. I mean, they have a whole collection of headsets, uh, including the Meta Quest that they support. That their, that's their chip. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of AR headsets coming to market in various ways. Uh, and so they see that they need to cultivate. And that's a fairly you know, nominal spend for a company like them to make sure that they find success. So final story, and then let's get to Peter. Uh, Snap buys a brain-computer interface company. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> and, and they characterized it as one of the last pieces in the AR puzzle for them. Yeah. And they're, which is they're like, pretty wait, bold what? about it. <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> So they're, they're pretty overt about like plugging it in and letting people do this stuff, right? It's not like so I'm gonna, you know. Off <laughs> All right, I don't know if we'll be doing the podcast that long, but uh, I, I hope that I live to see the see AR headset controlled by my thoughts, uh, and I assume it or it, it ignores my bad thoughts and only gets my good ones. Well, you know, Elon Musk believes in it, so I guess the rest <laughs> of us should believe in it. All right, let's bring Peter on. Our guest today is Peter Rojas. Peter's had a storied career in XR and in new media. He is today the head of product uh, for NPE at Meta, and he was formerly a partner at Betaworks, uh, an executive at AOL. Let's hear it for the Alumni Association. Um, and he was the founder of both Engadget and Gizmodo. He started out his career at Red Herring. I am so impressed with everything you've done, Peter. Thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. And uh, you know, it's I, I'm I'm honored that people even remember you know, that I started those things. Gizmodo, I started 20 years ago, oh my uh, God. which, uh, that it's still going strong and Engadget okay. is, uh, is still going and we'll celebrate its uh, 18th anniversary this year. Um, it's kind of mind blowing to me because when we all started this stuff and getting into the internet, we measured the lifespan of things in weeks. Like it was impressive if a website had been around 18 months, not 18 years. Yeah, Gizmodo and Engadget were a lot of the early go-to in that sort of, you know, post-AOL era of like trying to find the right places that were speaking to us and had the right level of intelligence and the right level of tracking. And even before that, Red Herring was certainly, you know, something that I, I was, was a reader. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was a reader and I, I was spoke at some conferences and I, uh, you know, did a product launch uh, with Red Herring. So there's like, that's <laughs> talk about, yeah, 25 years ago. Yeah, I, I loved working at Red Herring. And I was absolutely devastated when I was laid off after the bubble burst. <laughs> uh, but I did, uh, it did lead me to doing, to do Gizmodo and that put me on the path that I'm on today. And so I, I feel fortunate in some respects that I got laid off. Um, but, uh, you know, such a, such an amazing group of people that I got to work with there. Um, you know, Omalik, Dean Takahashi were my mentors there. Uh, Jason Ponson was my uh, editor there that I worked for. Uh, just an, an amazing, 
group of like group talent, like an amazing set of talent to be able to learn from as a young journalist in technology. And so I feel very lucky that I, I had the opportunity to spend time sort of, uh, you know, at their heels, so to speak. And continue to be icons in in our business. Absolutely, right? so that's that's the thing. It's like it, it, I think if I think very few people realize how much amazing talent came out of that era of Red Herring. It's, mm. You know, we all have. We, it was a very small community of us who all sort of the diaspora. We all spread out, but you know, so many of us took to blogging very quickly. Uh, you know, Ohm had Giga Ohm, uh, Dean obviously with Venture Beat, and uh, it's something that you know you had people that. Uh, understood the power of, of being a, a voice, you know, your own voice in this world. So you're head of product uh, NPE, uh, new product experimentation, is that? That's right, yeah. It, it took me a little while to figure out what the acronym was uh, myself. Uh, and, but uh, And so I know I said we weren't going to focus on this because I really, you know, Betaworks has done so much fantastic work uh, nurturing XR. So I really wanted to focus on that, of course, your baby. Um, rec room is now a uh, bona fide unicorn yeah. uh, and uh, and the uh, some of your other investments uh, at Betaworks have come close but let's talk a little bit uh, about your gig at Meta at least tell us what you can about it yeah so uh, for those who aren't familiar with NPE and and almost by design it's meant to be a little bit off the off the radar um, uh, it's it's essentially our incubator we don't like to call it that but it's the simplest way to describe what we do and um, we're charged with uh, basically developing, experimenting and developing and creating new, uh, entirely new standalone products uh, for Meta. Uh, and so uh, the what I lead is a team of uh, essentially 13 different product teams, uh, all headed by a founder. We call them founders who are charged with, um, you know, creating, taking their idea, bringing it to life, hiring the team, launching it and um, doing a continuous process of really trying to test and iterate and experiment and see whether we can find product market fit, knowing that it's really hard. It's hard to do this stuff in general. It's even harder to do it within the auspices of a big company. Any big company struggles with this kind of zero to one uh, uh, innovation. And uh, I, you know, it wasn't necessarily an opportunity that I uh, um, was looking for uh, when it found me, but I had led AOL's experimental product group Alpha um, about well, seven or eight years ago now, and so I had some experience doing that at a you know within the corporate context, and um, I've really enjoyed it. We have a pretty interesting mandate to explore areas which are strategic for the company, but not necessarily being addressed by or or maybe addressed in the same ways by other parts of the company. So, um, you know, we'll do some things, uh, you know, incubating some things related to gaming, for example, but it's not necessarily going to be the same kinds of gaming experiences, let's say that, um, you know, Reality Labs is developing with AR, with respect to AR and VR. Um, it doesn't mean that we might or might not do things, uh, you know, with design for, say, the Quest um, or for AR glasses or whatever, uh, but um, we have the flexibility and freedom to explore, try different things, things that might challenge existing ideas and practices at the company. Uh, I'd say that um, uh, one of the things that I, I, I try to tell our founders is, you know, you're not at another part of the company. You have the freedom to make mistakes, do things that other places aren't going to do, and you have the um, the freedom to to do that without the kind of the pressure cooker um, of delivering quarterly resort results and all that stuff that you have it that you know any big tech company has in terms of, of how they're driving products forward. And where is go ahead then? Is NPE focused on software applications, software layer, or does it touch hardware? Like I'm curious, did the 
portal so, devices yeah. come out of NTE or the Ray-Ban? Um, no, no, so all that stuff is in Reality Labs. Yeah. Got it. So, so not so obviously there we're not developing every single new product that comes out of the company. Um, it's more like a um, a studio designed to experiment uh, across a, a different a set of different themes. Um, we'll actually be announcing the themes for this year soon, so I'm not sure if my comps person would be very happy if I shared them. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll have you but, back. Um, but you know, yeah, one tens thing of share, thousands of listeners, yeah. it would be fatal. Uh, <laughs> but one thing we can share is that we are, um, uh, I'm, I have teams, uh, interna we're expanding internationally. So I have teams in Lagos and in Seoul, South Korea, cool. and uh, I'm looking to add additional teams in each geography. And we'll eventually over time, we'll add teams in other, uh, you know, other international locations. Uh, and, um, you know, part of what we believe really strongly is in uh, building with proximity for the users we're, you know, making things for. Um, you know, I wish that we could do hardware, obviously, given my background with with Engadget and Gizmodo, I'd love nothing more than than to, uh, you know, maybe it's time for Meta to try another phone, right? Uh, maybe I could get it right. But um, it's, uh, uh, we don't, we're not quite resourced for those kinds of, uh, those kinds of bets or experiments, but we do have the ability to, um, you know, play in different ecosystems, and we don't necessarily have to build anything specific for Meta or on any existing Meta surface, um, you know. We, uh, you know, part of the value we bring to the company, I think, is in being able to um, think orthogonally uh, to, to what others are doing and to have that freedom to say, well, we don't necessarily have to build uh, um, on the same platforms or systems that everybody else is doing. Yeah, we have, we have interesting sort of mirrored jobs because my role at the studio in this large entertainment corporation is very similar. It's explore, learn bring things back, see where they go, explore again, you know, rinse and repeat. And it's a, uh, it's a very interesting thing. So we, we share a lot of, yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. And, and I love, I love the, um, the kind of mission impossible aspect to it, uh, <laughs> which is most, you know, it's hard to do. Most people think you're going to fail. That's uh, okay. Um, but if we can find something really interesting that does catch fire and, and finds product market fit and can scale up and become something really successful, um, that's great. I think that the the um, the difficulty of it is liberating in a way. So I, I'm taking some risks with developing things, which I don't think a uh, even a startup or a big most startups a startup couldn't do, and most big companies wouldn't do it either. And so it's um, it's kind of liberating in a way. You can sort of take these kind of big kind of hail mary passes and, and develop ideas that uh, totally. otherwise totally. you know would never see you know the light of day. So I'm kind of enjoy I'm enjoying that aspect of it. It's it's not. There are parts of the job that are definitely challenging being in a big company and going through all the processes that we have to go through no matter you know what we do because we're at meta um but uh but on the whole the the quality of the people i work with here is just phenomenal i mean people that could go and be you know a top-notch startup founder or um or go back to any other part of meta and lead a product or or do whatever it's just it's really phenomenal caliber really high caliber of talent here um which is one reason why i was uh interested in joining where where are the founders and the ideas coming from so both internally and externally um so we have um uh occasionally we do uh like aqua high or something uh and we'll bring that in um, and so we'll have founders who've come in through acquisitions. We have team founders who have been at other parts of the company and have been interested in uh, um, maybe, you know, taking an idea that they have and, and take bring it from zero to one. Um, I'd say that they're sort of, you know, as you can imagine, they're always misfits at a big company who don't quite fit in and uh, uh, and would love to be able to 
you know, explore and just kind of scratch that creative itch. Uh, and then we also recruit for externally from people that um, are passionate about something they want to build in and aligns with our areas of focus. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, and for, you know, and there is some strategic reason for why it makes sense to build here versus doing it as a startup. And the other thing I'll say is, if you are, uh, if you have a family and uh, like to see your kids, um, this is a good place to be able to build and be creative without having to sacrifice um, everything else that's important to you in life, which you often have to do as a startup founder. So it's a, it's, it's a good place to be able to find that balance, mm -hmm. I think. So um, pivoting back to Betaworks, we don't have a whole lot of time in our guest segments here, um, but you spotted Rec Room very early. Um, what, what appealed to it? Um, at that time, right? We were only doing PC VR. Yep. They hadn't yet moved on to 2D platforms. Um, so they were the early of the early uh, of people doing, you know, VR for Steam uh, for the early Rift and Vive headsets. So what did you see in them um, that that made you say in 2016, that this is really a good bet? They Were they focusing on young kids then? What, what, what was going on? Yeah, I'll walk, I'll walk you through uh, the, the, the story. Um, so I got the, I pre-ordered the, the Vive headset. Um, so I got it as soon as it came out. I was really excited for it uh, and just immediately just, just loved it. Um, it was, especially if you had done, I mean, it was even, it was better than I thought the Rift, but even, but if you had done- I agree. Sort of three. I agree. Well, the, the room stuff. scale as opposed to the sitting was very compelling. Oh, it, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just, there, it was hard to explain to people how, like, why it was so better. Uh, you had to really experience it, right? And so um, I had pre ordered the, the, the Vive, and uh, I knew that it was something that I, I wanted to look at it for investments for uh, Betaworks um, and had, uh, you know, sort of an a thesis around VR um, and partly that. You know, spatial computing would mean that we had to um, invent a new um, language around user experiences, um, just in the same way that when we shifted from main, you know, uh, uh, what is it, mainframes and micro, you know, microcomputers to PCs, um, and then PCs to, to mobile, like each, you know, shift in paradigm, we had a new language, so to speak, of, of how we did of user interactions and, and design uh, paradigms and things like that. And so, um, I started to check Steam every single day to look at everything new that was launched in the Steam store. And um, and I remember when Rec Room launched, I downloaded it, installed it, and started using it immediately. And there was only a handful of the mini games at the time. I don't think paintball was part of it uh, initially, but-, but They used uh, to drop you into ping pong. Was it ping yes. And then they had, so there's like a handful of things. And basketball, I remember yeah. early on. Yeah. Uh, and so I just thought it was the best sort of social VR experience that I'd had so far. Uh, and what happened was a few months later, um, I think Rec Room came out in, I want to say maybe like June of 2016. So I think, I think it was maybe like three or four months later, I was chatting with a friend of mine in Seattle who was an investor, uh, a good friend of mine. And um, he was like, oh, what are you interested in right now? What are you excited about? What are you, you know, what are you checking out? I was like, oh, like I'm really, I've been doing a lot of checking out a lot of VR stuff. And there's this game called Rec Room, which I'm really into. And he's like, oh, I know those guys. I know Nick. Um, I'm going to put some money into their company, uh, you know, and uh, you should try to get into the round. And so I flew up to Seattle 
and met with Nick and the team. And we actually played paintball because paintball had come out at that time. We played paintball in the office um, there in, in Seattle. And um, I was just, I, I mean, I, I, it was an easy decision for me. Um, you know, spending time with the team it was easy to see just how uh, forward thinking they were. They were, they were um, so good at anticipating so many things going on with VR. Um, you know, one of the things I, I thought was really insightful was they were um, very considerate about the experiences that people have, uh, can have the negative experiences that people can have when you spatialize, right? That like people can invade your space, people can harass you in new and different ways. And they really were thinking about young people on the platform and, and others who, you know, traditionally have been the targets of harassment online and how in VR that can be just so much more intense. And so they were building into the user experience things like the bubble around you and voice changers and um, ability to like mute and block and, and things like that. But on top of that, they really laid out the vision for how Rec Room could be um, like Roblox, right? A, a, a place where people could build experience, craft them. Mm -hmm. And that was something that at the time, I don't, it was still on the roadmap. Um, there wasn't really any conversation, as I recall, about you know, getting beyond VR. I think it was still 2016. There's still so much um, uh, optimism about VR being enough, right? Um, but it was clear from over time after we invested in the conversations that I, I had with Nick um, that he was um, just thinking so much further ahead than everybody else, um, you know, thinking about cross-platform play, thinking about how to, um, about supporting creators, thinking about, um, you know, all the different tooling that they have to have and cross-platform play really could not have benefited them more. I, I don't know whether they tripled their usage or it just exploded once they got onto game consoles. Absolutely critical. And mobile. And mobile. and mobile, right? It's absolutely critical, I think, for any kind of social game to be cross-platform because you cannot be in a situation where, um, you know, you, you can't play the same game as your friends, right? Right. right. Um, and, you know, and and when I remember some of the conversations I had even early, I mean, they had a mobile version of Rec Room, so to speak, but you couldn't play the game, but you could do things like interact and do chat. You could, um, you know, share photos and things like that, of you know, screenshots people were taking. And that was one of the, I remember one of the early conversations that we had, and I, I'm not taking any credit for it because I'm sure it was already something I was thinking about, but he asked my advice. I said, you really have to like um, think about ways that people can interact with, with Rec Room, even when they're not able to put the headset on. Um, that, you know, being able to share screenshots, being able to chat, being able to, um, you know, make sure that if you have friends and you want to go jump into Rec Room, that you can go and play with that. And so, um, you know, because I was talking about some of my own experience with trying to coordinate friends to go play the uh, quests that they had, um, which I just, uh, I don't know if you played any of the, uh, the quest modes on, on Rec Room, but they had the early one was uh, Rise of Jumbotron, right? Which is this like 45 minute um, kind of laser sci-fi inspired um, you know, campaign that you go through with your friends level by level. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had with other people uh, online because we felt like we're in the room together when we beat Jumbotron at the end. We're all sweaty, tired, but we felt such a, a satisfaction, especially because we tried several times and failed. But we just felt such a, a level of satisfaction having completed this. And, and it honestly felt like we had been through something together. Uh, had this shared moment. And that was one of those moments when I realized that um, that there were so many pieces coming into place for Rec Room as a product uh, that I, I, you know, I wish I'd been able to put more money into it. I put as much as, as I could get in, in the seed. And the well, and you, make, you, make an interesting, you make an interesting point that 
you need to meet your audience where they are. You can't always cultivate them to hope that they'll come to where you want them to come. So the idea of building out multiple pieces and parts and having offerings on mobile, having offerings on console, having offerings on places where they're going to be, they're not always going to be in VR, which we know very clearly, right? Yeah. But they're always going to be enthusiasts around the product and the socialization, and that's how you start to grow. And, you know, and, and maybe one of the biggest critiques of people our age in the platform is there's the youth culture is so strong in it that if you're a little bit older than a kid, it's a little bit hard to have a voice in there because it's become Actually, fantastic success. Actually, I, I interviewed Nick and, um, and I asked him about that. I said, I feel yeah. a little bit weird when I'm playing paintball and I realized it's like you know, a bunch I'm of 60 something year old, right? then I'm playing with a bunch of 12 year olds. And sometimes yeah. I think, would their parents approve of this? I'm thinking probably not so much. Yeah, so uh, and he said, and he said, well, that's because you don't belong in there. Because <laughs> we're the uh, outliers, basically. Yeah, exactly. And his point was, it, it's for them, it's not for you. Right. And he's right. I, I it's right. Yeah. There's, every generation finds their own their own place to be, right? And there are outsiders that come in because we have a business reason to be there and a learning reason to be there, but ultimately it is for young teenagers, right? I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah I, think, I, think, I think, well, to their credit though, I mean, they really understand their audience and mm -hmm. um, they're humble in front of them, even though they're kids. And I think that's part of the success here. Yeah, yeah. They made something they thought was great and they found- They let power. it be what it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Peter, what were the other um, XR investments you made uh, at Betaworks? That was not the only one. No, um, so we actually ran a whole program called Vision Camp um, in, I want to say it was 2018, um, where we- I went uh, there, I went to your- Yeah, I think we had you as one of our our, uh, our uh, guests to uh, talk to the, to the group. Um, uh, and so we had a number of companies building in um, like AR and computer vision. Uh, it's funny, I'm not, I'm not sure I can remember the entire list off the top of my head now, it's been four years, but um, but uh, Stream uh, was one of the companies that we invested in and was uh, acquired by uh, Front Ryan Door. Fink's company, yep. I often promote it. <laughs> there's a family connection there. Uh, and uh, 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 and they were, you know, doing some amazing work around, um, you know, uh, AR and bringing it into the, um, uh, the service industry basically for I, I thought what you guys did for them was was brilliant because you brought them this other computer vision company and it turned them into more uh, more than what so many other people were doing which is you know see what i see facetime for enterprise and yep. and i think by by giving them computer vision you really kind of uh, turned it into superpowers yeah and that team solario they're from cameroon yeah i know and that was just like what was that guy's there. name he had a great name too um, his, his lane Kids Lane. Yeah. Really uh, nice guy. Really yeah. oh, nice. A, a, a great. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, and to be able to sort of pair the company up and then to have, uh, you know, that team from from um, Solario get a nice payday when the company was acquired was just, it was very gratifying because, yeah. it, you know, they came and they took, you know, such a big risk. Yeah. They moved, uh, they moved to Seattle from London, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, other investments, I did Eighth Wall. I did their seed round. Congratulations uh, on your recent exit. Yeah, that was, that was a great outcome. Eric uh, Murphy tutorian. I mean, I if he was holding the phone book, I'd bet on that guy. Oh, that I mean, it was. I mean, <laughs> that was one of the few investments we did where there wasn't even a product yet. It was just or a team. It was literally. I met up with him a few times, and I told John and Matt, my partners at BetaWorks, I said, "We have to do this. This is 
this is, a, you know, very rarely do you, you know, do you have that level of conviction around a bankable investor without any product to look at? Mm -hmm. um, but also, I, you know, what I found compelling was, was his, um, he made a strong case for saying, you know, mobile AR is going to be a big part of the puzzle here. Um, and that was really what he was betting on was, was mobile AR, the phone, not just headsets um, as being the bridge. And then when they, they really leaned into um, mobile browser-based AR, um, that yeah. wasn't as much on the roadmap when I invested. That was something that they really um, leaned into. Uh, but I think there's really no, I mean, this is why Niantic bought them. There's no company that has, is further along in, in you know, being able to deliver a, a high quality slam-based experience in the mobile browser. Uh, and let's, um, let's, let's pivot to Niantic a little yeah. bit. I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts on, on Lightship. Do you think they have an opportunity here to build a sort of third game engine, if you will? That I, I don't know. We've actually, um, I, I will say that uh, it, it is something like I've looked at the platform uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think I'd be uh, revealing anything too crazy to say that we wouldn't be precluded from building something on, on if we wanted to at NP, certainly within the realm of possibility for us. Um, and so I'm, 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 I'm interested in it. Um, I, I think that part of the challenge that they face is that they, need to have it be if they could deliver another hit um product it we would talk help. about this all the time they need yeah. more than one hit yes. one hit and so oh, I, well, and they I know that they know they, yeah, know they know and they know that too and i think that's part of the why there's can be that hesitancy from the part of developers right um you know it, it's uh i i think that it it's no secret that um the success of fortnite has had a very uh meaningful impact on the trajectory of unreal engine right uh, for Epic, uh, and um, and obviously, you know, Unity is not doing. They don't do first-party games, right? But um, but their strategy has been, you know, they they pursued a strategy was which has worked for them. Uh, I I do think that there's some interesting parallels with Roblox, which if you talk to them, they would also argue that they would they would like to be the third uh, game engine after <laughs> and, and, and Unity, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, part of it is about what is your strategy for fitting in and differentiating from everything else that's out there. Obviously, Lights, Lightship has its, um, you know, it, we know how it's differentiated, right, um, from the others. Um, but uh, from my understanding, the efforts that they put into um, supporting third-party developers to build on top of the platform haven't panned out in exactly the way that they might have hoped. And I don't know what their plan is. I know, but, you know, in fairness, you know, Unity and Unreal have these fantastic, you know, self-directed self um, learning platforms yep. that, you know, millions of people around the world have the opportunity yep. to follow those uh, programs, which are among the best in the world that I've ever seen. Yeah. Anything you'll ever see on Udemy. Uh, or yeah. any other platform. So, uh, you know, they've had 10 years to develop that. But yeah. I, I teach their courses in my university classes because I'm just never going to catch up to them. Yeah. I mean, they, they've done so much trial and error. They update these things over and over again. And so, you know, I think in Unity, especially since the IPO has been in just shoveling money in the direction of, of their learning channel. Yeah. So, so well, and, and I think you know, Niantic is, is 10 years behind them in that. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's part of it is that, you know, you have to create the pipeline. Uh, you have to be able to give, you know, um, if you are starting out as a, as a game developer, obviously you can 
there are resources to be able to teach yourself a lot now and to be able to, to learn um, a lot on your own, but you're not necessarily going to invest time in learning something unless you feel like, A, there's going to be, you know, jobs out there for you, um, or B, whether it is um, going to, you know, you feel confident that the things that you might want to build down the line are going to be enabled by that specific engine. Yes. You know, it's that sort of old joke. It's like, uh, no one got fired for, um, was it for buying IBM or whatever? Right. Um, <laughs> no know. one got fired for hiring IBM. I hiring IBM, right? Uh, it's the same <laughs> well, thing. It's, it's breadth like, and scope, right? I mean, you're talking yeah. when you talk about Epic and Unity, they have massive breadth and massive massive scope, so they can attract a lot of people to their platform to learn it, to develop on it, to exactly. produce on it. Well, and, and you go farther it. than that because it's community, right? What I say to my students is, you know, it's gonna you're gonna be using Unity at midnight on a Sunday night, the assignment's due in six hours, and you're going to be completely host. You're going to go to a Discord channel, and somebody in South Africa who's awake right. is going to take pity on you and help your ass. And that's how people learn Unity. And you know what? Yeah. That's exactly what happens, because yeah. nothing bad happens in Unity unless it's it with Unity, unless it's in the middle of the night, and you cannot call anybody else. Yeah. And, and, and you end up with this cumulative advantage around the third-party plugins, the assets, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, you know, you look at like what Unreal is doing with Epic Game Services and how they're making it so easy to be able to. So you know, you know why they had to get Eric Murphy Tutorian in there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I think. I think that's a, that's what I'm saying. I think it's really important to, um, uh, you can think about like the stuff that they want to offer with mobile AR. Um, they need to be able to, to um, broaden the set of use cases that they can satisfy, right? Uh, over the long run. So we're almost out of time and you and I did not get a chance to um, to dish on AOL, which, um, <laughs> you know, the culture was bad when I was there. Uh, what, what have Ted got vaporized there? Uh, hopefully he'll dial back in. But, you know, I thought uh, AOL, although I had some of the best years of my life there, was also an incredibly difficult place to work. Yeah, I was there twice. <laughs> I know um, you really were a glutton for punishment. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, I always joke. It's like, you know, if they want to keep buying companies from me, I'll keep working there. Uh, so <laughs> it's, uh, um, you know, even today, you know, it's a uh, buy my company, I'll go back. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, you know, it, it was interesting to see it at two different eras, and also to have not been there for sort of the classic era, right? Um, and to know people that were there in the in the heyday, in the high the high points, right? And um, to have seen that, I, you know, I, I was I was there in the, um, sort of the fall of the empire kind of phase. <laughs> and um, well, the, the ascent the of the empire was, let us just say, halting and a shit show. And, <laughs> um, you know, it was dissected ad nauseum afterwards. But certainly, you know, Bob Pittman, who pretty much ran the company into the ground, also made everybody rich. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of one of those things like Bob's doing terrible things. Yeah. But did you see the stock price last night? So, you know, I think that uh, in the end, you know, he accomplished what he set out to do, which is Time Warner held the bag. Yep. You yeah. know, when the music stopped, you know, it was uh, what's his face from Time Warner, Jerry Levin, who was standing there like, uh oh, I'm the one without a chair. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think they knew quite what to do. Uh, after that, uh, you know, it, it's um, when I came in, the strategy was um, let's become a digital media company, right? If we can't um, 
we can't rely on on dial-up anymore to sort of own the customer, uh, though the dial-up business continued to throw off massive amounts of cash. Uh, you know, even when I was there the second time in, in 2013 to 2015, it was still massive. The, you delivered most of the company's profits. Well, uh, you know, we used the, to say when I worked there, AOL has never met an acquisition it could not completely fuck. And, well, uh, you know, yeah. there was no bigger example. And you must have been there for, they bought Huffington Post. It was one of the so, most popular websites in the world. And the year after they bought it, it had fallen through a trapdoor. Yeah. So I actually wasn't there for that. And I, and they bought Babo just after about a year after I left, two years after I left. And um, they had, uh, you know, they fired the CEO who was there when, when I was there and replaced them with, uh, was it? Tim Armstrong? No, 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 it was before Tim. Tim actually managed to pull the company from dying, out of, away from dying completely, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's Ron Grant and Randy Falco. Oh, I know uh, Ron very well. Yeah, Ron and Randy. Ron was uh, a McKinsey who, guy. He came into AOL yeah. as a McKinsey guy. So AOL loved people who were smarter than them. Do uh, do either of the two of you still have your uh, collectible hundred hour CD uh, AOL discs? (laughs) You know, I got rid of all that shit when I moved. I still have a couple of the t-shirts though from the nineties, because in case you have a reunion, you always want to have a nineties t-shirt. Like every little department at AOL had a t-shirt. It was at, at a certain point, it was a parody of itself. Yeah. Yeah, there's there is a lot of that. Um, and and this, the second time I was there, um, they were, we were trying to figure out what to do with a lot of these legacy assets. So I get pulled into, uh, we have to figure out what, what we're going to do with, um, what's the uh, Winamp, right? Like, what are we going to do with Winamp, right? Uh, and I developed a strategy. I said, you know, here's something I think probably won't work, but here's something that could work. Well, at least they didn't ask you about ICQ. Well, they did offer me message AIM. <laughs> uh, and so uh, they asked me, like, do you want to take over AIM? And so um, uh, this is maybe like late 2014, mid-2014. And, and oh my uh, God. I said, let me do said, Have you heard of text messaging? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, so the thing that I think people, you know, well, you would, you would know this, but like people forget, like AIM was enormous. and It and, was instant and, messaging. We were all on it. That's yeah, it was huge. It was huge. It would be huge even now, but at the time when the internet was so much smaller in terms of like total number of users, it was just gigantic. Right. And uh, it had, it was down to, I think, 3 million monthly active users or something like that by the time that I, I got to it. It might have been more than that, but, um, and, uh, but I remember I was like, let me do some diligence on this. And I pinged the, uh, the person who um, had access to the analytics for AIM. And this was the like end of, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark moment where, you know, like the, I remember she's like, no one's asked for these numbers in years, you know, it was <laughs> like, let me like, you know, find, find these. And, you know, she pulled up a report for me and, and uh, it was clear that it just been hemorrhaging users as you'd expect. Um, but also, you know, beyond that, I mean, maybe there's some value in the equity, brand equity in the name, et cetera, but um, it would have required so much um, reworking. Uh, you'd have to basically write, create an entirely new tech stack uh, for it. And um, they just really miss an opportunity. People forget that when Apple, uh, I think when Apple introduced the app store for iPhone, um, AIM was a launch app. It was a launch partner. Um, you know, yeah. the, there, was all, uh, there was all sorts of stuff that they I think- have, They should have and could have combined AIM and ICQ and become WhatsApp. Uh, I mean, there's so much- So many things like that at AOL. Um, 
you know, the last thing job I had there, which was a VP of special projects, which means that I just basically made up ideas that would be shot down later. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of like the holding job. They give the senior VP who no longer has anybody reporting to him that <laughs> job so they can fire him in the next um uh, in the next uh, reorganization. Sure. So I was, do <laughs> I was doing this job and I came up with this idea called AOL business cards. And, and it, <laughs> the idea was that you would get a little business card that you could put on an AOL that would say who you are and your background and what industry you're in. And it would index vertically, right, against all electricians and yeah. then horizontally, electricians in uh, Manhattan or Brooklyn. Yeah. Right, so, I mean, it was, it was LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, but um, but they stood up halfway through the meeting. I never forget Meyer stood up. I, he was probably gone when you were there. Burlow was in charge of advertising. Stood up halfway through the meeting and said, no one's buying ads against business cards. This is stupid. <laughs> and he walked out. And it was like that moment like, well, should I keep going? And nobody knew if I should keep going or not. So somebody said, um, sure. And then somebody else said, can you go quickly? <laughs> I thought this is definitely like my last pitch yeah, at AOL. Yeah. All the ideas like that, Charlie, over the years that someone that had the sparky idea and oh, someone you know, way yeah. above the food chain just shot it down. And then it appeared later in oh, life yeah. well, as something that dominated. I think I'm just going to the point that Peter was making, which was just some AOL was a great case of generally not seeing the forest through the trees. Right, not not being vision, right? So it's interesting. Well, that, it, it, it wasn't a product. I mean, the, 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 it wasn't fundamentally a product-centric company, right? Um, and certainly by the time I, I, I done my second time there, um, you had relatively few people who had um, ever done any sort of startup-like uh, uh, product development. And uh, so it was, it, was, it, was very, it was very challenging. Um, but also just, uh, um, you know, because the company was such a precarious state um, that it was very hard to make long-term investments. Um, right. And so uh, that was, that was the culture of the nineties. Yeah. You know, uh, we used to say uh, the people who survived a long time at AOL said yes to everything and did nothing because when there's a reorg every six months, you're going to be recording, reporting to somebody different. So having a whole bunch of money and people associated with some project your ex-boss liked was not a strategic advantage to having a long career at AOL. So if you wanted to vest, you, you know, did not get yourself mixed up in trying to do something big that will never be completed. And if it is, you will never get credit for it. So there was just zero incentive to do anything much. Right. Well, yeah. I think it's interesting you you use the word that precarious edge, right? Yeah. Um, and I think when you look at companies like Meta, Google, Amazon, Apple, they're trying to make sure that they stay on that edge and take those risks all the time. So, you know, you're doing it with that. Yeah. Uh, true. Product they have a whole division for you that, to do that. Right. And Google has yeah. their Area 120 stuff that they're doing. Yep. And Amazon has their two pizza strategy that they're doing. And, you know, they're trying to make sure that they're not precarious, right? And, and it's very interesting. It's an interesting yeah, time. And, 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 and part of it is you have to make sure that your core business is healthy enough. Just, um, to take those risks. Right? To take those risks. Over and, and, and over and over again. Yeah, that's the bind that AOL ended up in is the business was mismanaged, right, um, for so long. I mean, the Babel acquisition basically took all of the company's cash and set it on fire. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and then there was, there was no, no uh, um, 
there's no debt. There's no strategic debt, so to speak, that you could nothing you could fall back on to take risks and nothing. And certainly like money that would be better invested um, yeah. trying to, to make either smarter acquisitions or, or, or do other things. Um, but I remember, I mean, when I, I was, I was on, um, you know, the, I was part of the M and a uh, committee, so to speak, there, uh, helping out uh, with acquisitions. And um, I remember they said, well, you know, what's your target list? What's your dream? You know, what would you want to buy? And uh, I said, well, there's like thing called Twitch that I think is really interesting. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, did a little bit more work on it and, and realized, well, you know, given how the market right now, like they may be buying us in a year, not the other way around. And then six months later, Amazon bought it for, you know, $900 million. Hey, 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 well, we, well, you know, the ap two apocryphal stories from AOL, and then we have to end this eventually. Um, you know, one is that uh, we almost bought Amazon or we almost bought 15% of Amazon right, AOL, for giving them the exclusive, making them in the exclusive bookseller at AOL. But um, Barnes and Noble came up with a million cash. And it's funny, I saw Bezos like three years later at the tech, TED conference. He didn't really remember me until I reminded yeah. him of the deal. And he goes, oh my God, that would have ruined us. That yeah. would, there would be no Amazon if we had done that. But you're probably right. Anyway, Peter, this was a great conversation. Um, and, and it's great to uh, EC you. Hopefully we'll do so again in the real. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, Ted, it's great to meet you. Charlie, it's great to uh, chat with you again. I always really enjoy our conversations. And I, frankly, it's always great to, um, you know, have these conversations with people who, are, who know the full depth of this context. Their, their history doesn't go back two no. years or something like that. You know? they, they're around, capable of seeing the full the scope, the full sweep of, uh, of this history. Um, it, it, so I really appreciate that. Well, Peter, we wish you luck in your new mission um, at Meta. It sounds really exciting. I am rooting so hard for you guys so thank you so much i appreciate it so congrats and have a great weekend everybody